Thank you very much, Karen. We can be grateful for our nation, but more grateful for the cross, that which brings freedom for us. As we interact with Scripture this morning, a couple of questions, not looking for response, some thought questions. Would you continue to follow Christ if the following were true? Your house was burned due to your faith in Christ. Would you continue to follow Christ if you were fired from your job due to your believing marriage is one man and one woman? Would you continue to follow Christ if your child was going to be killed in your presence unless you denied Christ? Another question, again, thought question. What must you have to be satisfied or content in your walk with Christ? A certain style of music in your daily life or in church services? Be involved in a particular type of ministry? Being able to listen to your favorite speaker and basically having what you think you need provided? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Earlier, John chapter 7 was read, and we find that Christ seems to get in trouble. People don't understand who he is, and we find the same thing happening in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, reading together verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. During those days, and those days would be when he had healed the child of a woman. He healed the deaf and mute man. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people, for they have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told to the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. Having sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciple, or disciples and went into the region of Dalmutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. We find in verse 11, there's a dramatic shift in the drama that is taking place. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. 
In the first 10 verses, we find that he fed the 4,000. They had been with him four days. Apparently, they wanted to hear him teach. He ministered to them, and then he fed them. He gets in a boat, and they cross over, and what do they find? The Pharisees came. The English translation does not necessarily bring out what is in the original language, the antagonism that is present. There is no doubt that the Pharisees are opposing Jesus. And the text says the Pharisees came. In essence, they came in a military rant. They were out to get him. And as they're out to get him, they began to question Jesus. Here is the one who is a healer, the one who teaches with authority, the one who calmed storms, the one who raised the dead, the one who fed 5,000, and here he fed 4,000, being questioned by hypocritical leaders. Remember what was said in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7 and verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why do your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Here we find the healer the one who calmed the storm, the one who raises the dead, the one who feeds the crowds, being questioned by a group of hypocrites. What happens? They question him. They're seeking to dispute with him. They're opposed to him. They question and they test. And the test that they're doing here is not an objective test to discover the merit of something, but it's a test to try to discredit, to find an obstacle. We found in our presidential election, if you listen to Obama, you listen to Romney, you found over and over again they were attempting to discredit one another. And the questions and the statements made were made to discredit. not to find out if they're really genuine. And the same thing is present here. The Pharisees come to test. They want to discredit. And the word for testing is used only four times in Mark. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 13, it is used there of Satan testing Jesus in the wilderness. And what was Satan's intent as he tested Jesus in the wilderness? to demonstrate that Jesus was who he claimed to be. No, he wanted to discredit him. We find also in Mark chapter 10 and verse 2, Mark 10 and verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him, that is Jesus, by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're trying to back him into a corner. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 15, we find that he is again being tested. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? In each reference, they're trying to back him into a corner, present a challenge, and discredit him. He is not the Christ. If you look in Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, we won't turn there, you'll find a more detailed account of the serpent, the devil, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. What was the devil trying to do? He was trying to discredit. So if Jesus had turned the stones into bread, he was saying, I'm not who my father just said I was at the end of chapter 3. Same thing with the Pharisees, trying to discredit James Edwards says, and I quote, the Pharisee expectation of a sign from heaven is echoed by Paul's statement that Jews demand miraculous signs. Even in the Old Testament, however, signs were not regarded as proof positive of God's will. A prophet who commanded, or commanded something contrary to the Torah was permitted but performed a miraculous sign was still a false prophet. On the other hand, true prophecy was demonstrated by the fulfillment of what a prophet predicted. A Jewish commentary in Deuteronomy 18 runs, if a prophet begins to prophesy, listen to him. If he does a sign and a miracle, but it does, does not come true, do not hear him. The sign requested by the Pharisees is not simply their desire for a miracle. Rather, they want something different. Jesus has done miracles all along with the Pharisees. Could not have been unfamiliar. The word Mark normally uses for miracle is absent in this text. Rather, the Pharisees request a sign from heaven, that is a confirmation of Jesus' ministry from God himself, an outward compelling proof or divine authority. They reason that if Jesus is working in God's name, then God should divinely authorize his work. End of quote. They didn't need a miracle. He'd already fed to 5,000. He had raised <clears throat> people. He healed the deaf and mute man and so on. And they were probably aware of that. They wanted a sign. They wanted proof. Just as the serpent was trying to get Jesus to provide proof. They asked for a sign. And what is Jesus' response? He sighed deeply. The original language would imply that he groaned in his spirit. It's a rare word occurring only here in the New Testament. And fewer than 30 times in all of Greek literature, a survey of its usage reveals that it is not an expression of anger or indignation so much as dismay or despair. It's used in situations where someone is pushed to the limits of their faithfulness. Kind of despair. Don't these people get it? I healed a leper. I teach with authority. I healed a deaf and mute man. I fed 5,000. I fed 4,000. Oh, 
Don't they get it? He sighed deeply. Remember the identity of Jesus, his character, has already been presented over and over again. The antagonism of the Pharisees would be somewhat parallel to the Israelites. <clears throat> that is, when they were in the wilderness and how God responded to the Israelites. They were in the wilderness. God had delivered them from Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea and dry ground. They had been given manna. They had been given water. They groaned and complained time after time. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And what does Israel do? They provide gold and Aaron makes a calf. And when you get to chapter 33 and verse 5, it's kind of like God sighs and says, don't these people ever get it? It's also recalling, I think, the disbelieving of the generation in Noah's day as that's contrasted with Noah. <coughs> Noah and his family were the only eight righteous people left when the flood took place. It's almost like God sighs and says, don't the rest of these people get it? I'm the creator, sustainer of the universe. And they go on, walking away from me. It also would be comparable to the stubbornness of the Exodus generation, which is talked about in Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11, where the psalmist talks about them being a hard people. They had a hardness of heart. And Scripture mentions that by the time the children of Israel got to Mount Sinai, God had already performed 10 miracles for them, and they still turned their back on the Lord. It's ironic that the previous story involved Gentiles who were far off, but yet were closer to Jesus than those of his own people, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are Jews. They had a rich heritage, but they're there to test him, to find fault with him. And in the preceding account, verses 1 through 10, we have probably all, all Gentiles, and they were being taught by Jesus for three days. The Pharisees are in league with the enemy to discredit Christ. Notice Jesus says, he sighs and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Why do they need proof? He had fed the 4,000. He had healed the deaf and mute man. He had walked in the water. He had fed the 5,000. He raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. He cast out a legion of demons. He calmed the storm. But see, the Pharisees' mind was already made up. They were hard in their heart. A sign would do nothing. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. Why wouldn't Jesus grant a sign? Is it because there's a messianic secret? Probably not. In the Gospels, the demand for a sign itself 
is a sign of attempting to gain by empirical means what can only be gained by faith and trust. In the synoptic gospels, the demand for signs is itself a sign of attempting to gain by empirical means what can be gained only by faith and trust. It is the false prophet who wants a sign or a wonder. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. Faith that demand or depends on proof is not faith, but only veiled doubt. If a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife while he is away in order to prove her faithfulness, the detective's proof will scarcely guarantee the husband's faith. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. Faith, like love itself, cannot be proven. It can only be demonstrated by trust and active commitment. The Pharisees end up walking away from Jesus. The disciples follow Jesus into a boat. We can't provide enough proof to lure someone to Christ. A response based upon proof is totally contrary to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. And let's turn over to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. A response based on proof is totally contrary to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. In Hebrews 11, we find the, what we might call the faith chapter. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Someone says, prove to me that God created the universe and now believe in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed. <clears throat> People who look for and demand proof have already de demonstrated a lack of faith. There seems to be a difference between proof and evidence. There's evidence that Ruth Ann loves me. I'm not looking for any proof that she loves me, but there's evidence that she does. There's evidence that God created the universe. It's written all over the place. That's different than proof. Proof is saying, you prove it to me, maybe then I'll respond. God says, come to me in faith. And then evidence may be seen. Evidence confirms faith 
which one already chose. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, to demand proof is much different than accepting the demonstration of one's love and or faith. The Pharisees, back to Mark 8, were looking for proof. Their minds were ready made up. We don't believe Christ is who he claims to be. But we're going to back him into a corner so Jesus give us proof. Jesus said, I won't give it. I tell the truth, no sign will be given to it. He left them, got in back into a boat, and crossed to the other side. Now let's think about some applications. Perhaps <clears throat> we should not give in to the demands of religious people who don't truly desire to follow Christ due to his character, identity being, and his death and resurrection. I'm referring to people who want their desires satisfied. Oh, they may be very religious, faithful to outside activities, but their dependency is not solely on Christ. When the 12 chose to follow Christ, it was not based on proof. It was based on the identity, character, and being of Jesus. And we will find today that as we invite people to follow Christ, it's not because we can give them all kinds of proofs. It's because of Jesus and who he is and his identity, his character, and his being. We're called to follow a person, not proofs about that person. I'm called to love Ruth Ann, not because she can prove to me that she's faithful to me, but because God says you're to love her. Sometimes people just want their desires satisfied, and that falls into the category of proof. Well, give me contemporary music or worship. Then there's other people who will say, I must have traditional music or worship. Others say, I've got to use a specific Bible translation. Others might say, there must be something for children and teens and senior saints and so on. And others might say, well, if I don't get my way, I'll offer some threat. And some people get angry and defensive when confronted. And others say, I must run the show. If I'm going to come to this church, there's got to be traditional music or true, uh, contemporary music. And if not, then I'll go somewhere else. What are you looking for? Are you following Jesus or a sign? Ah, if I don't get my way, I'm going to pitch a fit. Are you following Jesus? See, that's the mindset of the Pharisees. I'm fearful today that many professing believers are looking for a modern-day sign. This is evident by going from one book to another. 
going from one concert to another, going from one seminar to another, going from one speaker to another. Entertain me. Give me what I want. Years ago, Ruth and I went to hear Michael Card up at Baptist Bible College. And we sat down, and there's a <clears throat> Ruth Ann was sitting by a guy, him and his wife, or whatever. And he started to talk to Ruth Ann, and he said to Ruth Ann, I want to tell you about the great book that I'm reading. And I heard him saying this to her, and I thought, I know what book he is going to say. And he talked a little more, and then he mentioned the name of a book, and I thought, I was right. It wasn't the Bible. I was waiting for him to say, oh, this great book is the Bible because it teaches me about Christ. But it was something else. And I'm not knocking books. I'm merely saying, are we following Christ? Or are we at times in Christianity today tempted to be like the Pharisees who want to test him and say, you know, God, give me what I want. And if you don't, I'll do something different. As I ponder this application, I'm fearful the sheep are following and being like their shepherds and leaders who go from one church to another. The average stay of a pastor in a church is about three years. And pastors will say, God called me somewhere else. I'm not out to prove or disprove that. But being a pastor myself, having been through the ups and downs of pastoring and talking to many other pastors over the years, more often than not, it's because things aren't going the way they want. They're looking for some more proof if they're going to continue to follow Christ. We're going from one method to another. Well, this method didn't work. Let's go to the next. Or leaders going from one program to another. This program doesn't work. Let's go to another. Or going from one conference to another. Christ and Christ alone is not sufficient. Is my following Christ dependent upon what happens in our local church? If it is that I'm not following Christ. The Pharisees were not interested in following Christ. They were interested in a proof. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Christ alone and following him was not sufficient. The Pharisees, looking for a sign from Jesus, was not due to a lack of evidence. They could have seen his miracles. Hear his teaching, experienced his teaching. They were hard. 
And sometimes in dealing with unsaved people and even some religious people who want some type of sound, sign, maybe we need to recognize that it's a heart issue. couple examples from unbelievers. You proved to me that God created the universe and I'll trust Christ. Their heart is probably already hard. I'm not saying don't provide evidence. There's a difference between proof and evidence. Evidence, you're demonstrating what God says. Proof is I got to have it. Proof of the resurrection. Will you tell me why Christians are no different? No, again, pursuing something in specific. On a religious side, those who may be religious and are demanding, it's got to be my style of music, and I'm not talking one type or another. I'm talking whatever type they demand. It's got to be my style of worship. It's got to be programs for my kids. Do we follow Jesus? The Pharisees did not. They were religious. The 12 did because they were convinced he was who he claimed to be. Are you following Christ alone? Or do you demand some modern sign? Earlier I asked you if you would follow Christ if your house was burned due to your faith in Christ. You were fired from your job due to your thinking or thinking marriage is one man and one woman. Your child was going to be murdered in your presence unless you denied Christ. I posed those questions just to get, merely get you to think. Do you follow Jesus? Or do you follow what he does? There's a difference. If I stop following Jesus because my house is burned, then I was following a house, not Jesus. If I would recant my faith to save the child of my life, save my child's life, then I must be following my child and not Jesus. See, these are real-life situations that are taking place in our world today. I pose the question, what do you have to, be, have to have to be satisfied or content in your walk with Christ? A certain style of music, a certain type of worship, you know, a certain speaker, whatever. If you have to have them, isn't Christ and Christ alone sufficient? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. That is this generation, the generation which he was living. And we find that the disciples, as we'll discuss next week, struggled with that. And their hearts were also hard. But Jesus responds to them somewhat different because they were following him. Because of evidence, they were not demanding proof. In light of this passage of Scripture, let's worship our God through singing. And if you've not come to faith in Christ and you're following Christ and Christ alone, why not today? And if you're a believer, are you following him 
because of who he is. Travis?